Hi, I am TechCrunch writer Haya Kamp, standing in for Daryl for the occasion. You're listening to the TechCrunch podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the world's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, I'm talking with Dom Midori Davis about how lowercase conservative VCs are shaping the startup landscape and, by extension, the world. I'm also talking with Taylor Hatmaker about all things Elon, from his cringy tweets to his most recent flip-flopping on will he or won't he by Twitter. Before we get into all that, here's what else is going on in tech news this week. Kim Kardashian reached a $1.3 million settlement after the SEC got mega grumpy at her for posting an Instagram story that promoted a crypto thing. The agency specified that Kardashian should have disclosed her $250,000 payment she received to publish a post about Emacs tokens on her Instagram account. The settlement reached with the SEC by Kardashian includes a $260,000 payment that represents the original amount plus interest, as well as a million dollar in penalties. Now, a million and change is probably what Kardashian has in loose coins between her sofa cushions. But all of this does serve as a reminder that crypto assets fall under existing securities laws, at least as far as the SEC is concerned. We have a whole bunch of coverage about this on TC from Daryl, Anita and Dom. Tesla CEO Elon Musk kicked off Tesla AI Day 2022 with a quick level set on expectations. We've come a long way, he said, and then stepped aside to allow the first iteration of its robot walk out onto the stage. More than anything, the bot demonstration was to show the progress Tesla has made in bipedal robotics. It is still unclear how these robots will fit into Tesla's overall roadmap and when they will first strap them onto a rocket and send them into space. Musk said that right now we just want to make basic humanoid work well, and our goal is to find the fastest path to a useful humanoid robot. It is worth noting that in the robotics world, humanoid robots are a little bit of a joke overall because, well, humans aren't actually all that well designed when you think about it. Presenting these robots, by the way, is probably only the fifth craziest thing Musk did this week, and we'll circle back around to that in just a moment. You can read Kirsten's coverage of Tesla's AI days over on TechCrunch.com. If you heard our equity episode on Wednesday, you'll have heard Alex and Amanda talk about how the creator economy is up a small polluted river without a paddle. Spotify seems to have cottoned on as well, and broke out the scalpel of budget cuts. The platform cut a bunch of its owned and exclusive podcasts. Over the next couple of months, podcasts from Gimlet and Parcast will be leaving the platform, along with a total of 5% of the company's podcast staff. This represents the first big content cut Spotify has made since ramping up its podcast strategy significantly. The company ballooned to more than 500 original and exclusive podcasts. Of course, cutting 5% means that 95% of the staff is still there, and these cuts don't seem as severe as what we've seen across other startups. It's also worth noting that the company's non-music audio still seems pretty robust. It recently launched more than 300,000 audiobooks, for example. Check out the full story from Lauren Forrestal on TechCrunch. For the first interview, Don Midori Davis is here to talk about her piece on how conservative VCs are using their very deep pockets to fund their vision of the future. Hey Dom, I am so excited to be on the pod with you today. Yes, oh my gosh, I'm excited too. You wrote this amazing article this week with the title, Conservative Capitalists Are Fending Their Vision of Their Future. And I read it, and then I read it again, and then I was like, we have to have you on the pod. So I'm so glad you're here to talk to me about it. Yes, I'm so excited to talk about this topic. Let's just jump straight in. The first thing that sprung to mind for me is like, it feels like you're getting to something really important, which is money shapes the future right? And conservative money shapes the conservative future. Do you want to say something about like how that lands on you? Like what happens if people are using money to to create a future they want to live in? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing, even, you know, through the past elections that we've had, the current political climate, 
you know, a lot of the conversations that we have in terms of, you know, mobilizing people to vote and, you know, just raising awareness to things. A big chunk of the conversation that is missing is just that it's all about money and that the economics of everything is what really drives politics and the motivations of politicians. So just monitoring how these ultra conservative multi-billionaires or whatever are wielding their money is just something to shine a light on in terms of what we probably should just take note of, I guess, as to what the future could be. Because if the people who have all the money are the ones shaping the future, then where does that leave the rest of us who can't, like, how do you compete with that? Yeah. And it feels like this whole one person, one vote thing is turning into more and more of a lie. Because while, you know, in a just world, sure, you get one person, one vote. But at the same time, the votes, it's really, really financially driven. And I think, you know, the democratic system is part of that. But also, as you're hinting on in this piece, it's really like, it kind of reminds me of that story, right? Where like, you have two wolves inside you, which is the wolf that grows. Well, it's the one you feed. And money feeds the wolf of these societal changes in a, in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, it's kind of the money as speech, money as power piece. Yeah. And it's especially as the midterms come up and as we start seeing campaigns start for the presidential election that's coming up. It's interesting to see, you know, I guess in the context of this article, like the VCs who are backing specific political candidates and kind of seeing how they're doing, because, you know, money is what's needed for a political campaign. It's needed to make all those ads, to do all the events, to travel across the country. And so when you're looking at who could just call up their billionaire and get million dollar checks and who has to basically like crowdfund the landscape, the playing field for some people is not even equal. And I don't know, it's just something to to pay attention to. Yeah. Like, how do you pay attention to this? I mean, you just wrote a whole article about it, but <laughs> like as a reader or as somebody who's casually observing the world we're in, like, where do you start? Oh, gosh, I think people need to be bolder in calling these people out. People need to, you know, say them by name, Peter Thiel. <laughs> like, you have to be bold enough to say it. You know, a lot of the problems, especially within VC, people don't want to say things by name because, you know, maybe you hurt investor relations or maybe it's all about the reputation, right? Like, if you're in the middle of a fundraise or if you want to fundraise one day, maybe going against someone big that maybe people and others in your network may like, maybe that's not the smartest move, right? Because you have to, I mean, it's money, right? At the end of the day, you still want that money. But people have to be bolder. I mean, I, this piece went through a few iterations of itself, but something that that I always come back to in a lot of my coverage that I, for some reason, have never explicitly put in is the role of ethics in VC and kind of what is that line because some argue like you're really just supposed to be investing and funding businesses like it's not supposed to be this deep, but it is this deep, especially when you look at the businesses that are being funded and the founders that are getting chances and the impact that it's having and the impacts that it's also not having on the communities which need to be impacted. So I think just an overall start calling these people out and just keep talking about it Yeah, and see like what that heads towards. Yeah. Like the whole phrase, follow the money, right? A lot of journalism is about if you consider money power, like how do you follow that around? This came up for me really loudly recently, and you wrote about this in this piece too, which was the parlor raising a bunch of money, right? So I went digging 
they sent me a press release and I responded to it. It's like, hey, who invested? Where did this money come from? What are you going to do with the money? Like really basic questions. Never got a response. Then I started tapping into my entire VC network. I was like, hey, does anybody know about who actually invested in Parler? I contacted the SEC to see if I could find anything. I contacted Parler and contacted people I know at Parler. And people are like, nobody wants to say a word about who invested in this thing. Now, in a world where people are typically so desperate for PR coverage, I don't know, that smells really whiffy to me. Exactly. I don't know if it's because they know that it's going to be bad press or if it's just it's that silent money. It's always like the shadow people that are actually pulling the strings. I got the press release, too. And the first dot that I connected was that Parler went offline after the insurrection and now they own their own little cloud service. I'm guessing that they're probably never going to go offline again. Right. And it's interesting because in terms of backing and who backs these companies, I don't know. They're always in the dark. And it's like, why are you back there? Yeah, for sure. And there's something about the use of of language as well, right? In your piece, you make it clear that they're investing in femtech and they're referring to it as femtech. And I'm bristling. Like, did that word make you go, hmm, at all? Well, it stood out to me because I don't know if this is across the board, but I know that we don't necessarily use the word femtech. Like that's, you don't, we don't like use that word. So the fact that it was just actively calling itself a femtech company was kind of a a red flag to me. And I was like, okay, so I have to be very, I have to pay like much attention to the language and the way they phrase things, which is how they get away with stuff like this. Yeah. They don't explicitly say like some of the language that I called out was like transphobic and stuff. It's not explicitly said, but after, I guess, being on the internet for long periods of time and just knowing how people use language to get around things, it's like their audience knows exactly what they're saying. And it's easy to go over the heads of other people who may not be like, I guess, in the know. And I don't know, that's another thing you just have to call out. You just have to say like, yo, what is that? I think we took this out. Is that actually after Vice called out that company, 28 and EV Magazine, because I was initially going to write a piece very soon after, but we actually waited a little bit to kind of make the piece broader. Something that I noticed was that they had changed the language of their entire website. And so I emailed them. Like I had to go through like the web archives to pull up what it was and what they changed it to because they toned down a lot of the language that they had been called out for. And when I asked them about it, the publication, they were just like, oh, yeah, you know, we didn't want people to get distracted and all these things. Like they wrote like a whole statement about it. I was like, that's just so interesting that you took this money from Peter Thiel and you had like, I feel like the first iteration of the website was the true meaning of the company. Yeah. And after the backlash, you know, they tried to tone it down. But I don't know. Well, it, and it's interesting. And there's a kind way and there's an unkind way of looking at that, right? One of them is oh, you know, they gave it a whirl, they were an early stage startup, they screwed up, and then they come out with a massive mea culpa saying, hey, we got this wrong, we're sorry, we went back and we edited everything, and this is how we're going to do it forward. But notably, that's not what they did, right? They did something very different. No, yeah, that's the thing is it's it's one of those, because I was thinking about that too. I was like, okay, this is a young woman who has this company, kind of a new founder, just got this massive check from one of the biggest names in BC, obviously has a lot to learn. I know that That's why I was careful in the piece about criticizing the company and her necessarily, because I'm like, okay, she is like a founder and this is probably like her dream of having this company. Like, how do we look more so at intentions and how do we more so use actions to speak for themselves rather than me kind of, I don't know, putting words to everything? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I feel like a lot of the time it's it's about intention versus impact, right? It doesn't really matter so much if your intentions are pure, if you end up being an accidental turf. That is possible until somebody yeah. points it out to you. And if, if you continue after it's been pointed out to you, then you're just being a jackass. Yeah, it's one of those things where, I mean, like I said before, I think I totally believe that the first statements that they had, that is the true belief. Because the product itself is the same. We even covered their fundraise announcement. And when I was looking back through some of the things that the founder said, as in like using science-based horoscope on like emotional insights, and I was like, what does that mean? The Another thing that was interesting, which I also think we took this out, which I think we took a lot out, was that it, it's not a period tracking app, but it does ask you for information regarding your menstrual cycle. And that just is like so like I don't know if they intended it to be that obvious in a post row world, but it's like, why are you asking for that information in an era where women are scared of giving that up, you know, in, in fear of like persecution, literally. There were just so many flags that were red. And I don't know how many of them were intentional, aside from the statements that Stan, <laughs> but there was just so much to unpack with that company in particular. Yeah. I guess that was probably also one reason why me and my editors were like, all right, let's look at the bigger picture of all of this. Because out of all of the health tech companies to invest in, why this one that doesn't make any sense, right? These are the questions he should have been asking her. None of this makes sense. So I don't know. It is interesting. And I think that itself was worth a call out and that this is a random company. You could have given this money to any other no offense, but like real purposeful company that could really impact women during this time. It was just weird. Yeah. 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 And I think this is why it was interesting that you decided to zoom out a little bit. And, and instead of just talking about this company, you're talking about, hey, what does it mean when you're using money to instantiate the future you want to live in? Right. And I think that is where this gets interesting. You know, and obviously I don't know the people involved personally, but from the outside, it does feel a lot like this is another angle into money as political speech in a way. Yes. A great line that we also took out was that I think my editor brought this up in terms of when buying elections is no longer enough. This is the other way to do it, because technically people like Peter Thiel could just use all their money and back all of these products and literally just create their own world. Yep. And we're kind of already seeing that, like they have their own social networking apps. They, I was going to try to compare the apps. Like I bet if you look hard enough, they already have their own Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, probably like they have their own little world going on. That's dangerous because people don't pay attention to it. They're just like, oh yeah, they're just like on that app. Yep. But that's like, that's the shadow stuff again, where we don't hear or see about things until next thing you know, like, oh my gosh, what do you mean that they're organizing on the app? Yeah. Like it's, I don't know, it's it's something to severely pay attention to. Yeah. Because they're quiet about it. Totally. And the thing that scares the crap out of me is with the existence of things like Parler and True Social and The Right Stuff and Rumble and, you know, all those kinds of things combined with a staggering lack of media literacy, like the use of language that we are pointing out here, I feel like those conversations are happening shockingly and scarily rarely, right? And so now we have these things that are designed to be echo chambers. You have to be a particularly special human being to try and go dating on the right stuff, which is basically a bunch of people who have like right-wing ideals and that's how you choose to identify yourself and that's why you try and 
get dates. I found it hilarious that somebody pointed out the other day that it's like 95% men because no women would go anywhere near the site, which, <laughs> you know. I, no, I mean, did you see the options? Yeah, yeah. Like that's what? <laughs> like, I, I, don't, I mean, I see why they're not on the app. Right. No offense. Yeah, no, no. And I get it, right? I, I get that. What was the thing that really drew you to this? What was the most important thing for you to get this off your chest and onto a, a TechCrunch post? Well, it was more so one of those things where I don't have all the answers, but I just wanted to make sure that people were aware so that they could just start talking about it. And the more that we talk about it, maybe we can do something about it. And that was really the purpose of the post. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much for coming and talking with me about it. No, thanks for having me on. Next, I talk with Taylor Hatmaker about Elon Musk's most recent change of heart, and if he will actually be off the hook or on the hook for the trial and as a new owner of Twitter. I am joined here with Taylor to figure out what the hell is going on in uh, Musk world. Hey, Taylor. Hello. I have a question for you. Shoot. Between the brain control company, the space company, the tunnel company, the car company, and now the bird sanctuary and a wall of cringeworthy texts... Are we ever going to stop writing about this guy? I didn't know there was a bird sanctuary. Is that a real thing? Well, Twitter. Oh, the bird sanctuary. I don't think we're ever going to stop writing I about him. So I think <laughs> he is going to, I mean, you, you could tell me literally that he had his hand in like any pie at this point and I would believe you. You could be like, oh yeah, he's pivoted to like, I honestly have no idea. There's nothing that would surprise me at this point. Well, clearly you didn't blink an eyelid at him potentially having a bird sanctuary. So I mean, you can tell me anything. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Elon Musk has a lot going on, and that means we have a lot going on. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so we actually scheduled this call to talk about the cringe texts that came out as part of a Twitter trial, and then right before we went on this recording, something else happened. What happened? Indeed, something else did happen. And something else that happened is something that already happened, which is Elon Musk agreed to buy Twitter, the company, the bird sanctuary. Mm -hmm. It is just that whole journey has just been absolutely wild to me. It's like, oh, I'm going to buy Twitter. I'm not going to buy Twitter. I'm going to sue Twitter. I'm going to be sued by Twitter. It's like, OK, can we just I feel like there's not a lot of people who can actually do all of that in public and get away. Yeah, with he, he is. Or I don't know. Did he get away with it? <laughs> he can get away with almost anything. I mean, today he wrote a letter to Twitter and was like, I'm back in the game. I don't want to do this trial that's coming up. That sounds like it's going to be bad for me, potentially. He didn't say this, but that's kind of the subtext. I'll buy Twitter after all. Just a total about face. Yeah. And the letter to Twitter has been filed with the SEC, which the SEC is like a big deal. The SEC can find you. It's a really serious regulatory agency. And with almost any other figure in tech, like that would mean it's a done deal. Like you tell the SEC something, you have to do it. But it's Elon Musk. Like right. he doesn't give a shit about the SEC. He doesn't care about anyone. Right. He's rich enough to not have to care. And so what does that actually mean? So so there was a intention to buy Twitter. Then suddenly there was a trial. And as part of that trial, there was a whole bunch of text messages. Can we catch up on that part? Like what happened there and why did everybody, including every journalist at TechCrunch, suddenly get very excited about Musk again? Yeah. So he's like, I'm going to buy Twitter out of the blue. And everyone's like, oh, my God, you're going to buy Twitter. And then he's like, actually, I don't want to buy Twitter because the market tanked. This is not what he said, but this is, again, the subtext, you know. The global economic situation worsened and he was like, oh, suddenly this is not a great idea after all. So he's like, I don't want to buy Twitter. Twitter is like, we're going to force you to buy Twitter and in doing so we'll take you to court because it's very complicated now. And in going to court, that means that he has been required to produce a lot of documents. He's produced a lot of documents. His legal team's produced a lot of documents. Twitter's produced a lot of documents. And everyone Elon Musk has ever talked to has produced a lot of documents. Yeah. So a lot of texts came out of that. And that's what Amanda and I suffered through the other day. So I kind of have to wonder, I mean, don't these people use Signal with expiring texts? Like, how did these texts even exist? It's honestly funny you mentioned that because 
just in another court filing that was literally last night, there's like a new controversy going on that pertains to an email that was sent over ProtonMail. And ProtonMail is like, you know, a secure email service, supposedly anonymous. You know, I think people have varying opinions about that. But basically, like the moral of this story is even if you're sending something over what feels like a secure service, like it can turn up in court at the end of the day, especially if you're you know, a public figure who might be spending a lot of time in court. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And so what would we learn from the text? There was an article that you and Amanda published that basically was doing a little bit of sideways glancing at the sheer cringiness of it. I want to learn a little bit more about that. Yeah, the texts were weird. They were both like exactly what you would expect, but somehow still surprising just because you're watching all of these super powerful, wealthy men, and it's almost exclusively men, like literally all men, interact with Elon Musk and kind of like kiss his ass and pat his back about the idea of buying Twitter and saying, oh, you're going to, you know, you'll get the censors off of Twitter. You're going to restore it to like free speech platform, whatever. And all of these people just kind of slid into his text, so to speak, when he announced that he was going to buy Twitter. And everyone had ideas about, you know, who she, he should put as CEO and like if the deal should go through, what he should offer, all this different stuff. So yeah. it's basically just like a lot of rich and powerful people, some many in Silicon Valley, weighing in and like kind of sounding off to Elon Musk and he's, you know, kind of humoring them to different degrees. Yeah. And I think there's something interesting that happens there, right? So there's one set of conversations that is happening in public, which, you know, Elon is a frequent user of Twitter and mouths off quite a bit. Then there is like this second layer of text where, you know, there's some presumed anonymity and suddenly the tone gets pretty different. I mean, I did quite enjoy how he's just telling people to F off left, right and center. I mean, that feels legit. Yeah, it's funny. Some people come across as like exactly the same in text and in private correspondences. And some people are just like wildly different, as you know. Yeah. It's kind of funny because in the text, he actually has quite a few communications with Jack Dorsey. That's like one of the more illuminating things, you know, and Jack is just cheerleading him about the deal and is saying, you can make Twitter what it was supposed to be, which is kind of like this like decentralized platform. And, you know, it's worth noting that, he, that Jack Dorsey is in Elon Musk's phone as Jack Jack. I think that was the most important revelation. Uh-huh. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, yeah, no, that's the only thing that really mattered. You know, but there are some folks who are like really businesslike in the text, you know, like, for example, Twitter's current CEO is texting with him and he is like all business. He is exactly like the same guy in text that he is, you know, in a regulatory filing. Yeah. Well, it seems like some of these people were texting as if they assumed that this would at some point end up in court and other people really did not. <laughs> yeah, there are definitely different degrees of professionalism. I mean, you have the investor, Jason Pelicanis, in there who's texting just like wildly kissing up to Elon Musk. Like his stuff is really embarrassing, you know, and he's kind of a controversial figure to begin with. But like they have a falling out in the text. It's all just kind of weird and, and voyeuristic to read and definitely not pleasant to read. But we do learn some stuff in there. We learn that Jack Dorsey, this is like a particularly interesting nugget, I think Jack Dorsey thought that Musk and Twitter's current CEO would actually get along really well. Mm -hmm. And he was like, oh, you guys will be great. You're both engineering minded. You're both technical people. And then he's like, okay, like, you know, how did this Google Hangout or whatever you had go? And Musk is like, I can't work with him, you know, or whatever. Like they just totally clash. Yeah. So you can kind of see the relationship devolve from there, which is interesting because it kind of tracks with the timeline of what we've been seeing reported. And all of it really does just kind of like undergird what we've already seen reported. There's just like lots of kind of weird moments in there too. Yeah. You know, you've got like Joe Rogan in there being like, yeah, you're going to fix the platform. Yeah. And at some point he's like, we will put Oprah on the board. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. yeah he's texting with Gail King. I mean, it's just like kind of funny to see who the world's richest man talks to, but, and most of it won't surprise you. I would say Gail King was like pretty much the only surprise in there personally. Yeah. I mean, I am just delighted by him thinking of Jack Dorsey as Jack Jack, the guy out of Indecredibles, right? The baby. I'm like, I don't know how that happens, but that makes me very giggly inside. The thing that is less giggly is like, look, there's a lot at play here, right? There's a lot of like pretty serious 
people trying to make something pretty big and serious happen, and a human, i.e. in this case Elon Musk, who has been promising all sorts of things about the abilities of Teslas, and a lot of that hasn't quite been delivered. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, there's big implications here for Twitter as a company, and I think if Twitter could go back in time, I don't even know if I'd want any of this to happen at all. Like, you know, so say there's almost like no good scenario here for Twitter. So say they actually do go to court. What Elon said today, you know, isn't going to pan out. He's going to change his mind tomorrow. And the hearing goes on as promised. So then Twitter is basically trying to force somebody who doesn't want to own the company anymore to own their company. And that's, I mean, I think it's already been terrible for morale. I know at Twitter, a ton of trust and safety people are really worried. There's a lot of people who've done really good work and they're really concerned this is just going to undermine all of that. Yeah. It's a really stressful time, I'm sure, for the Twitter workforce, which is unfortunate. You know, but if he decides not to buy Twitter at this point, then it's kind of like this weird thing where you're like, oh, we went on a date and I, I didn't like him after all. Right. You know? So it's like, that doesn't look good either. Right. Um, and now there's a forced relationship and we all know, you know, maybe yeah, not, they, maybe and they not the best they don't go way. private and right. investors are like, yikes, like that didn't go well. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a lose-lose. Yeah. Have you looked at the Twitter stock price? What's happening there? It bumped up today on the news that Musk would buy it. I mean, which is not surprising. I think Tesla dipped, which again is not surprising because all the Tesla bros are like, please don't buy Twitter. Your attention is already so divided. Right. And he's like, no, I need to own Twitter for some reason also, including all these other things. Well, that's the weird thing that's never really come up, right? And the other thing that, like the why, is still not totally clear to me because the stuff he says he's going to do, I'm not completely convinced is doable. And if it is doable, it might not be doable by him. Like, I don't know what what resources he has access to to actually implement the things he's threatening to do, essentially. Yeah, it's really not clear why he wants to buy Twitter other than the fact that it's his favorite platform to use. You know, it's, it's the social network that he spends the most time on. So he must see value there. Mm-hmm. I don't know that the value is really what he's like portraying it as. You know, he's going to take it private. He's going to make the company so profitable, whatever. I don't I don't really know if that's what it's about. It kind of seems like one of those billionaire ego things where you're right. like, well, I'm a smart guy and everyone listens to me so I can fix this platform we all love to hate, right? Like, so he spends a ton of time there. He hates it. He thinks there's too much censorship. And we all, you know, journalists, we're all on Twitter and we, we love hate it too. Everybody's yeah. there. And Elon Musk also has like a uniquely weird trait of like thinking that the same things that are important to him are important to everyone else. Mm-hmm. So he's like, oh, there's this huge bot problem on Twitter. Don't even get me started on that. That's like a whole other diversion with all of this stuff. But, you know, he's thinking that like everyone on Twitter is just being inundated every time they post with like hundreds of thousands of messages from bots. But it's like, no, that's your unique Yeah, that's very specific. You're the richest man in the world and have a really different experience of life than every other person on the planet. Yeah, Um, no, 100%. Right before we hopped on this call, let's see what he tweeted. He said, buying Twitter is an accelerant to creating X, the everything app. So this is his new, I mean, this is the first we've heard of this, literally the first, like, if he's serious, who knows? Probably not. What is the everything app? There is no everything app. It's right. just more more muskery. Well, and the weird thing is, I mean, this is not the first time X has come up, right? The original like precursor to PayPal was called X and he owns X.com. And so suddenly this brand popping back up is actually interesting to me. The thing I think is wild is, is Jack Dorsey's maintaining that this was always meant to be a platform. Right. Which makes me think kind of API first, decentralized, all that kind of stuff. But Twitter has a pretty bumpy history when it comes to its developer tools and, you know, the access to the APIs and all that kind of stuff. And I don't believe for a second that the platform doesn't know which of the users are bots or not. But at the same time, it's kind of caught in this weird loop right now by being a publicly listed company, which is, you know, if there's a steep drop off in number of users because they ban all the bots, you end up with a really weird kind of 
what do you do? So that might actually be the one argument in favor of going private. Now you're no longer, the number of users, active users can drop by 90% because they ban all the bots without actually tanking the share price in the process. Yeah, I mean, the bot thing is such a mess. So it's like Twitter has always, <laughs> this is going to get a little complicated, but Twitter has always said, how does it put it? That less than 5% of its monetizable daily active users are automated accounts, are bots. But that monetizable daily active users is not Twitter's user base at large. It is a metric that Twitter came up with specifically so it can report more relevant information to advertisers. Mm -hmm. And what its monetizable daily active users are is actually a subsection of Twitter that it samples and it weeds out the bots. So like Twitter's always made this 5% promise about a subsection of the platform and a sample that already has most of the bots weeded out. And it's like, maybe we mess up to the tune of 5%, you know? So right. then Musk comes in and he's like, no, 20% of Twitter is bots. And they're not even having the same conversation. Right. Because we were talking about different metrics, you know, and it's pretty clear from the text and from the extremely obvious subtext of Musk's cold feet about the deal that this doesn't have anything to do with bots. Right. Early on, he was like, when I acquire Twitter, I'll, I'll get rid of all the bots. And then like a month later, he's like, well, I read that there were bots on Twitter. You know, I'm feeling apprehensive about buying the company. Right. So that whole thing, in my opinion, is a diversion. And I think a lot of people are just confused because it's confusing. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think there are valuable bots on Twitter. That's the other weird quirk, you know. Absolutely. Some of the best parts of Twitter are the bots. It's just like the weird bots that like, you know, retweet whatever, Riverdale, you know, in Shakespeare or whatever. Yeah, totally. Know? In yeah. the early days of uh, Trump's presidency, I made a bot that translated all his tweets into Spanish and it was called El Trumpo and I thought it was hilarious. And, you know, there's like little jokes, there's little arch projects, and, you know, to some argument, you know, TechCrunch's Twitter account, a lot of the stuff that gets tweeted there is fully automated whenever we hit publish on a story. Is that a bot? Is it not? You end up with this really weird in-between spaces about what is automated users, what is pure bots and what are like, I don't know, machine-assisted humans, if you will. It's true. Bots are one of the things that makes Twitter kind of what it is. And I think what you were saying earlier about Twitter's like developer history and everything else, you know, it's still a fun place to make weird little projects, right. I think, to some extent. And it's interesting because we were talking earlier about, you know, Twitter being like an open protocol. And in these texts between Elon and Jack Dorsey, they talk about that. And Jack's like, oh, this has always been my vision, whatever, whatever. But Twitter has a parallel project in the works that's doing that right now. And it's called Blue Sky. Mm -hmm. That's already in the works. I don't even know if Elon Musk is aware of it, honestly, which is kind of hysterical. But, you know, it's something like Lucas has written about at TechCrunch. They're like actively working on a parallel protocol that basically is Twitter, but is an open platform that anyone can develop on and, and do anything to. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a pretty cool project. But instead of being like, hey, I'm going to like donate money to this project that's already in the works, he's like, no, I'm going to, I have an original idea. You know, I'm Elon Musk and this, I'm the first person to think of this thing. So not to completely uh, reduce a very complex set of questions to like a yes, no question, but Musk buying Twitter, good or bad? Good or bad for who? For you. Like, what do you think? Is well, it good or bad? Personally, it's yeah. terrible. Well, I have to keep covering <laughs> Elon Musk forever. That's like my nightmare. Um, but as we started this conversation, we're not going to get away from that anyway. <laughs> I would say for it's for Twitter employees, largely bad. They mm -hmm. There seems to be some major morale problems. It's hard to trust somebody who dragged you through the mud and is still maybe being forced to buy you. For Twitter users, it really depends. I would be inclined to say this is a bad thing. I don't think Elon Musk has a very nuanced understanding of social media, social media content moderation, platform policy, regulatory environments that are going to affect this stuff all over the globe. So I think he has a really simplistic view and he's coming in. And I think that is potentially bad news for everyone. I mean, yeah. the people I guess that it's good news for are his like ideological cronies who are in his text saying, yeah, you know, like... Twitter took down my racist uncle's tweet and I'm mad about it or whatever. I mean, they don't literally say that. I'm obviously exaggerating here. But, you know, some people think that Twitter is over moderated and some people think that Twitter is under moderated. So yeah. I suppose if you fall in the former, you're going to be like, 
this is great. If you love Elon Musk, this is probably good for you because like, you know what you're going to get. It's Elon Musk. So I'm not completely convinced I do know what I'm going to get. That's the thing. He seems to flip-flop on so many things. So this is why I asked you. I, I'm a little bit on the fence. I would love for some of this stuff to be easier and more transparent and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Twitter has such incredible inertia that I'm not even convinced that a new CEO and a new owner can change the direction of it all that much. Famously, communities are hard to change, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I mean, something that doesn't get talked about that much, I think, is that Twitter for the last like year, maybe year and a half, has actually been kind of like, in terms of product, has been on an upward trajectory. Mm -hmm. Twitter went from being totally static, not changing anything about the product to the detriment of the users and everybody else, to actually starting to release new products, to changing things about the way they moderate platforms, to introducing new tools for trust and safety, to, you know, rolling out things like Twitter Blue, which actually explicitly in the texts Elon Musk calls Twitter blue something like a ridiculous pile of shit or maybe dog shit. Like he li he thinks very poorly of Twitter's recently released products. Mm -hmm. But Twitter has been releasing new products. And so it was kind of like climbing up a bit, you know, whether you think that that as a company it was healthy or not is a completely different issue. But. Yeah. Well, and then there's the interesting piece about Twitter blue, which is obviously a subscription product. But in some of the text, they're actually talking about using Dogecoin or one of the other shit coins to say, hey, maybe we could charge a tiny little fraction of something for every tweet made. That has, of course, got some downsides because, you know, that ruins a lot of the part of the fun of Twitter, but it'll certainly kill off a lot of the spam bots because suddenly the cost of spamming becomes so much higher. I cannot think of like a less equitable idea for a platform that is supposedly supposed to democratize communication yep. than charging users to post content. Like that is just such a backward simplified, immature way of looking at these issues altogether that it could only come from Elon Musk. <laughs> I think that's a perfect place to end. <laughs> Next time I'll tell you how I really feel. <laughs> Taylor, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you about this and I look forward to continuing this conversation at Disrupt. Always a pleasure. That's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com. Also, TechCrunch Disrupt is coming up on October 18th through 20th, live in San Francisco. We'll be hearing from guests like Dylan Field, Serena Williams, and Kevin Hart. Use the code TCPOD, all in one word, to get 15% off passes. Also be sure to check out all our other podcasts, Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. See you all next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.